What is going on, everyone? Did you miss me? It's Brian Ford with Self-Improvement Daily. Take ownership of your personal development, one tip at a time. Today, it's time for a self-improvement sit-down. I have the absolute honor of speaking with experts in their field, the best of the best, who share lessons and learnings that showcase their knowledge. In these conversations, we cover topics that can't possibly be covered in two minutes like the weekday episodes. And if you like those, then don't worry, they're going to keep on coming. But as for now, it's a self-improvement sit-down. Let's dive into it. Unfortunately, I made a mistake during the recording, and as you'll hear, my mic quality isn't good and sometimes clicks. I'm not perfect, and I appreciate your understanding. But in any case, you don't want to hear from me anyway. This is self-improvement sit-down number 35 with Dr. Ellen Vora. And we are live. Today's guest is Dr. Ellen Vora. Ellen is a board-certified psychiatrist, a medical acupuncturist, and a yoga instructor who takes a refreshing approach to medicine. She believes in looking holistically at her patients to understand how different issues might arise as a result of their physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Dr. Vora is a sought-after speaker on the topics of depression, anxiety, and insomnia, among other things, and I'm excited to speak with her today. Ellen, thank you very much for making the time. Brian, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'd just like to start off by covering the basics and establishing some common ground that we can grow upon because you're very unique as a medical doctor in your holistic approach toward health. You know, there's not one cause and one fix to a lot of the issues that people experience, and you really preach that in everything that you do, um, which means that there's no such thing as a cure as well, which just kind of goes to show this multifactorial approach that's required for medicine. And you talk a lot about how there is this reflexive nature toward medicine and how a lot of practitioners try to use formulas to treat patients, but it's way more than that. So just kind of as a baseline, when it comes to our health, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about that all contribute toward the larger picture versus just the independent factors? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, you know, you could kind of say it's everything in our lives, but I think it matters the most to just focus on the fundamentals. It doesn't have to be high tech or sexy. It's like, how's your sleep? Do you have community? Um, do you find meaning and purpose in your life, in your work? what are you putting in your body? Like, are you eating real food? Are you eating fake food? Do you move at all? Do you get sunshine and fresh air? Um, it's really, it comes down to these things. And we've made it so fancy and made it so ivory tower and inaccessible. It's like, I'm the doctor, I'm the neurosurgeon. I, I have the knowledge that you need from me. And it's like, that's BS. You can do so much of what it takes to keep yourself well on your own. And it also doesn't have to be expensive. Um, there's just so many people trying to sell us what we need or trying to tell us they have the knowledge, but so much of us, we can just feel empowered to do for ourselves. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And it's something I didn't think about is kind of how maybe this approach is almost counterintuitive to the way that society operates. You know, you talk about capitalism and like everything is sexy and highlighted and like, you're really kind of being pushed to believe a certain thing where, you know, the solution might be kind of this broader approach. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm curious to understand a little bit more when it comes to you as a practitioner and starting to uproot some of the marketing messages and ideas that some of your patients have, you know, how have you been effective 
at introducing this concept toward people being like, hey, think about the big picture, because I'm sure there's some resistance there. Yeah, well, it's a great question. These days, you have to like jump through a thousand hoops and wait seven years to get in to see me because I have a pretty small private practice. And um, we right now have a really outsized supply demand of holistic mental health practitioners and the need for it. So these days, people have already bought in if they're coming in to see me. Like mm-hmm. you're not coming in to see me and be like, you're just going to prescribe my Adderall, right? And that'll be the <laughs> end of the transaction. But it used to be, I worked at a really big primary care group and there was nothing inherently holistic about it. So people would come in for their Adderall prescription and they would get an earful of, well, did you know that sleep matters and sugar and inflammation and zinc and all of these factors and ADHD? And um, it was an interesting like way to sort of cut my teeth that sometimes I would really convert some people and they would have their eyes opened that their ADD is not just a genetic destiny. It's not just the neck up. It's not only corrected by a pill, but that it, it exists in the context of their life. And so I was able to convert some people and I think I pissed off a lot of people, <laughs> most of all my boss. Well, I'm sure, I mean, that's what happens anytime you introduce any kind of innovation or disruption is you challenge the belief system that people have. And for you to step into that environment and have the courage that you wanted to introduce this new way of thinking and to actually test that on your patients, like, yeah, there's going to be friction resistance to that. But it sounds like the discovery on the back end of it was compelling. So, so what was that process like as you, you know, are establishing yourself as a thought leader and a practitioner, you know, and, and you're testing your own beliefs? Like, how did you manage that that conflict between the resistance and the trade-off of what you could have faced versus your decision and commitment to pursuing what you thought was best. Because a lot of people deal with that in a bunch of different areas of their life and you're doing it in a very difficult field. So yeah, what was that like? I think we all have to get really good at balancing how we listen to that voice inside of us that is our truth and how we take in feedback. Um, so I think that was always the balance. It continues to be the balance, but in a way at first I had to realize, um, when I was a salmon swimming upstream in a conventional primary care practice and I was like, Hey, you know, dairy matters or, you know, all these things I would say, and I would get so much resistance and pushback and eye rolls and like, you know, had great relationships with the other doctors, but they would say, you know, kind of like, I love you, Ellen, but no. (laughs) And so it was like, uh, it was, I was just marching to the beat of my own drum. Mm. Um, and it, I think it, it could have been that I would have just kind of gotten mousy and, and ashamed and, and figured out how to just sound like everyone around me and think the way everybody around me thinks. Um, that would have been a path of least resistance. It's not like the fabric of who I am or what I'm here to do. And so I, I kind of I wasn't really at risk of going that direction, but some people would be. But I think that there is a way of, of saying, no, I hear this little whisper inside myself and I'm going to get still and listen to that and honor it and not question it and not doubt it. But then the tricky part is you have to also balance it with, I'm getting this unanimous feedback from people. They are resistant to these ideas. Am I crazy? You know, you kind of have to always be um, just grappling and staying humble and staying open. Like to me, it's like you never get dogmatic or entrenched. 
And in some ways, I'm speaking truth to power and pushing back on some pretty dogmatic and entrenched ideas about mental health. But I need to be careful not to get dogmatic and entrenched in my own weird, holistic ideas. And so mm -hmm. you just stay open, you listen, you never sign up for being in just one tribe or one camp one mm -hmm. school of thought. Like, I think that's where we all really get so stuck because it's so comfortable to be in a group where everyone around you agrees with you. That feels awesome, but mm -hmm. that's guaranteed to make us false in some ways. And so you, you hear the feedback, you take it in, but at the end of the day, you discern what's my truth. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's such a two-way street, you know, and I think what's, what's awesome is kind of what you express is something that I say every single day on the podcast is take ownership, you know? So it's like, this is your truth. Take ownership of that. This is your responsibility, you know? So like coming from that place of sharing your truth, then you have a certainty and conviction and credibility around that so that people are willing to listen. So that kind of initiates one mm -hmm. side of the street. But then when you do get that feedback, you have to be open to receiving what that means. And then how does that integrate into your belief system? So it's not just me telling you what's right. It's me telling you what I believe and tell me if I'm wrong, you know, and that's such a more approachable way to kind of drive innovation or to int introduce this disruption because it's, it's so necessary because people don't want to be exposed to something that feels threatening to them. And the way that you present something can be perceived as a threat or it can be perceived as an idea. So it's, it's amazing that you've almost intuitively like known that this is an effective way to communicate, particularly in an area kind of in our world and in an industry that has so much so much preparation and years behind your belief system and like this is how things are that you got to be extra careful within medicine so that's that's just really interesting how you've been able to navigate that because i'm sure it was uh, like you said a salmon swimming upstream it's just not a not necessarily a, a very conventional process yeah i mean i think that that's how we change each other's minds and affect each other is we say what's true for us but it's not like pointing a finger and saying you need to adopt my views it's much more just saying well here's what's true for me here's what's alive in me it's a very nonviolent communication concept mm -hmm. um hats off to marshall rosenberg mm -hmm. and i think that you really just um you say here's what's true for me and then you um, basically lead with the question like, well, what is true for you? Like, let's all share that. And I mm -hmm. think a big part of why it's hard for us to be like that is that the word should and all the conditioning that we're raised with, we, we all think we should be saying a certain thing or doing a certain thing with our lives or having a job or prestige or whatever. And imagine if we just had a, a operating system in our society that was more along the lines of, who is this baby here to be? Like, what is this baby here to uniquely contribute and their mm -hmm. unique perspective? And whatever it is, it's perfect, um, rather than everyone should be striving for the same tired goals. <laughs> uh, that is, it's so refreshing because what's true for you may be different than what's true for someone else. And both of those may be true, right? And like, oh, that's, yeah. that's the point. And that's what like this holistic approach toward medicine is. It's not the point and shoot like, hey, you know, this is the way that things are. You need to address like all of the different complexities that are involved in this. And it's just, it's so logical when you say it, but you know, it's contradictory to the conventional way of thinking. So I, I love that. Oh, that's, that's such a good point to start on. Um, it feels good because there's just a lot of commonality within that. Um, coming back to health. So, you know, we talk about these holistic practices and there's a bunch of things to try, right? If we're trying to individualize what works for us, then there's a trial and error process, which requires a lot of effort, you know? So there's a lot of kind of life integration um, and, and it's just not necessarily something that happens overnight. It takes time. 
and I know people are busy with lifestyles and responsibilities. So when it comes to integrating some of these healthcare practices into those responsibilities and lifestyles, what things do you usually suggest so that people can get started and at least take the first step forward? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a way, I find myself always playing the devil's advocate for wherever somebody's already at. Like if somebody's like, I don't need to eat in a particular way. I can just keep eating whatever processed crap I like. Um, and like none of this stuff matters. It's all soft. The only thing that matters, like I believe in science. You know, I believe in like the only thing that's real is medication. Um, for those folks, I want to sort of encourage them to just look a little bit differently at what's on their plate, what's real food, how they can just start to nourish their bodies in a different way. And then for the folks out there who are like maximally optimized already, (laughs) they're like counting their macros and they're, you know, intermittent fasting a certain specific interval every third day. um, Then I almost want to encourage people to ease off a little bit and not white knuckle everything so much. But let's say like the average person out there who's like, well, you know, I'm kind of healthy, but maybe I'm open to inspiration of what I could be doing. I think some general ways to start like compasses that I think are pretty universally useful. One is to actually get a phone out of the bedroom. So um, we all kind of just default setting, bring our phone into the bedroom. It sits on the bedside table or worse like clutch to your chest while you sleep and that's disruptive to well-being and health in a number of different ways and one of them is the blue spectrum light at bedtime disrupting our circadian rhythm the ideas in the phone are often really stressful and that's seeding our unconscious with pretty unpleasant thoughts right before we're about to fall into sleep makes it harder to fall asleep and more likely to have bad dreams. Um, And then the fact that it has no natural stopping point. So you might think I'm just going to take one last glance at Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is. And then 25 minutes you come up for air bleary eyed. And so it pushes your bedtime later than it otherwise would be. Um, Another compass I really think is, is it's simple. It works is eat real food, avoid fake food. The end. And so, you know, you can always get more granular about what's real food and what what balance of it should I be eating. And I think one thing that we can all do well with is to ignore headlines and um, basically just drown out the noise of one year cholesterol and egg yolks are bad and the next year they're good and now red meat is okay or, you know, carbs or this or that. Um, The headlines are clickbaity and myopic and they're missing the whole picture. And if you generally try to eat real food, strip away some of the addictive foods that behave like drugs for us that really confuse our appetites, then you'll find you have an intuitive relationship to what your body needs. Mm -hmm. And you start to know, here's what I need today. Here's what I need tomorrow. And it can be completely different from one day to the next. But that's a much more useful guide in terms of how to feed yourself than any headline. And other things with exercise, I just think that we need to lower our standards. (laughs) It's not like I'm here to say like, did you know that exercise is good for you? It's much more useful to just say, lower your standards, like something that takes five minutes in your living room for free, that's pleasurable. That's the key. That's what's going to be sustainable. And it doesn't have to be more fancy. Totally. I mean, that's the key to behavior change is something is better than nothing. And each time you do something, it provides evidence for the identity that you want to have. And then that identity lives in your subconscious. And now it becomes your normal behavior, you know, so like there's just so much Uh, there's so much evidence to the importance of that. And I think exercise is one of the most misunderstood realms of that, where it's like, just do something like you don't need to like you, yeah, sure. Sweat, but you don't need to like be breathing heavy and panting and like feel miserable. Like, no, that's not the intent. But anyway, that's tangent aside. 
I, I love I love the whole kind of picture there. But, you know, the first thing you, that you said and then kind of provided examples for was if you want something to be different, you know, meaning if you want to improve your health, if you want something to be different, then you've got to do something different, you know, and if you have a certain input that you're applying into your life, there's going to be a function and then you get a certain output on the end. You don't change the input, you don't change the output. So let's just think about what you're currently doing and how that might produce a different result. And I think what's a really good skill and something that I'm working on myself and what you mentioned is kind of like feeling. So on the other side of that experimental process, you have that output and then you feel like, was that the food that was right for me? Was that the level of exercise that was right for me? It's so difficult to like truly know and feel that you have to kind of work into that space. Um, and, and I'm wondering if you have experience, of course, you know, you've discovered it for yourself, but when working with other people and trusting that intuition and that, you know, meeting the needs that we have, do you have some advice to help people like really feel what's right for them? Because it's hard to articulate. Uh, I, for some reason, want to cry with this question. Yeah. So that's just it, right? Like we are so taught that we need external objective instruments to tell us what worked for us, you know, to, to measure our labs. And I'm not fully against, you know, testing our labs. Like I'll occasionally get my vitamin D level tested or, you know, thyroid antibodies. But we have really handed over our power and we forgot that we have this amazing internal like quest lab in our own body, which is just, how do you feel before, during, and after something? Um, and I think about like family members, good friends who are just like, oh my God, should I get this tested? And it's like, well, just start with, you just check in. And it does require that we slow down and get a little silent and trust our feelings. And we're really taught not to do any of those things. We zip around our lives and we're, we're just, we're continuously taught that like, you don't know what you need. I know what you need. Insert anything like trying to sell us something. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just love for people to feel empowered of like, I checked in with myself and here's what I want to eat. Or I checked in with myself and I realized I need more sunshine or I checked in with myself and I realized I don't tolerate gluten or whatever it is. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think that that's where we really can navigate our lives. Um, it's so simple. Like there's an elegance to it Yeah, and you don't need anybody else. Yeah. And it sounds like, because the, the answer you gave, which is very poetic was that like, you just got to show up, you know, you just got to show up and there's almost this collective wisdom that you have within you that, it doesn't rely on data. You know, maybe there are some indicators that can help you gain a little bit of maybe one piece of the puzzle, but ultimately it's about you showing up and allowing your collective wisdom and your intuition just to know. So like there's almost like a faith that the feeling represents a knowledge that is so hard to trust, you know, like it is faith-based. So it's so hard to trust that that exists and in the uncertainty of it existing, it's hard to believe. I think that's such a good lesson for all of us across the board is, you know, if something feels a certain way that sure, there can be data to validate that, or there are different ways to measure and explore it. Like, you know, you cannot improve something unless you're measuring it because then you'd know that there's a measured improvement. But beyond that measured improvement, that is just one of the factors that contributes to the thing that's happening holistically. And I think that's the theme of the conversation is there is so much more going on than you see or that you understand is contributing. And it's, Again, I'm using the word refreshing, but it is really refreshing because like our society is so inundated with quick fixes, fast hacks, do this one thing. This is how it is. And it's so not true. Like it's, it's just so not true. Um, and I mean, that's something that you've been able to integrate into medicine, which 
I think is compelling. And that's why, you know, it's important that you continue to have a voice to express it. Um, but, but there's, there, I mean, there is a transition kind of, there is a new wave that is emerging when it comes to this philosophy across many different domains. And uh, um, I think it's for the best. Oh, 100%. Yeah, it's happening. It's building slowly, but mm-hmm. the army is coming. The tidal wave is coming. Perfect. So I want to talk about something now that <laughs> is an interest that we share, um, something that I am probably a nerd about and that I've found that you're a nerd about too, which is evolutionary biology. And <laughs> I try to tie most things that happen back to how we evolved to be a certain way and kind of like that our cognitive lives are so different than our biological evolutionarily designed lives and that there's so much dissonance between those two. And it's just fascinating to me to know how the remnants of that kind of provide these poorly adapted decisions or behaviors that end up presenting in destructive ways in the present, you know, and that's something that you speak a lot about when it comes to holistic health is, you know, how are these different remnants of our past contributing toward our current state? And, you know, I, I think I'd love to just learn a little bit more and maybe hear a few examples or hear your understanding of how this all works because, you know, human nature is human nature, right? It's like our evolutionary nature. And um, I'm just curious to know how our unhealthy living choices or decisions or tendencies somehow are part of that evolutionary past. Yeah. So... I think I want to credit, I don't even remember his name, but it was a biology professor I had sophomore year in college who really opened my mind in this way. And we were studying the postpartum, sorry, we were studying postmenopausal health. And he basically said, this is a, it's impossible to accumulate adaptations to the postmenopausal state Mm. because it is by definition post-reproductive. So it's a very, it's a stretch to say that any adaptation to menopause is going to impact your likeliness to have a successful offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can make a case for like, okay, a healthier, happier grandma kind of helps, you know, the mm-hmm. next two generations down. Um, but overall, it's like a by definition post-reproductive thing. So any adaptation there doesn't make you more likely to survive, doesn't make your kid more likely to survive. It might make your grandkid more likely to survive. And so um, that really blew my mind. And I started to realize like, we only grow and change as a species in ways that impact our survival and the survival of our offspring. Mm -hmm. And there's also this concept called highly conserved, which is like something that is really close to survival and survival of our offspring is more likely to be tweaked more quickly in the genome. So like things related to birth and sexuality, reproduction, all of this, um, it really matters, you know, whether or not like your elbow joint is well-designed is like not as likely to be highly conserved and tweaked by evolution. Mm -hmm. Um, Like an example of of something highly conserved is I believe that since the advent of C-sections, Um, human offspring are actually now able to have bigger head circumference. Hmm. So basically in the past, bigger head circumference and adaptation, maybe you get to have a bigger brain, maybe you get to be smarter, but you risk killing your mom or yourself in childbirth. So not an adaptation. So for a while, there was sort of these competing pressures of this is an adaptation, but it's not. It's kind of shooting the moon. Hmm. And then with C-sections now, like 
go nuts, have a big brain, be smart, and <laughs> your mom survives. And so um, that changes quickly. We're now having a bigger head circumference. So that's mm. a pretty quick change. Yeah. Most things don't change so quickly. So I don't know enough about tech to appreciate like whether I describe this as like we have our hardware and our software, but basically like we're stuck with millennia old hardware mm -hmm. and then we're eating Doritos. <laughs> so maybe that's the software and it's a real mismatch. And so it's not to say there's any like moral virtue to eating more natural food or being organic or going hiking. It's just, it's just being realistic about the fact that our genes are stuck in that era. And mm. so if you want to feel well, we kind of need to give our genes what they're expecting, what they're designed to be optimized with. And a lot of that has to do with eating food that's recognizable, um, a certain amount of activity, a certain amount of time outdoors, um, all of these things that were just like completely not negotiable in so-called evolutionary times. I like to call it like the proverbial savanna of evolution yeah. as if it's one time. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, that's just it. It's like you do your best to approximate those conditions in modern life within reason. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting response because I was more thinking along the lines of like, oh, this is the way our brain is wired and these like this is kind of the way that our subconscious or like physiological metabolic processes were designed that are maladapted. But then you went back to the holistic approach, which I think is more important, which is the, this is the culture we have. This is the lifestyle we have. These are the things that we've introduced into our life that are very novel and new that interact with our previous hardware in such a way that is actually maladapted. So I, I love that idea. I mean, I, I think psychologically, you know, I talk a lot about like the law of least effort and how we have this predisposition to prefer to be lazy just out of energy conservation. And that's simply, you know, counterintuitive to what our society tells us to do to be productive, you know? So like there are certain kind of like pieces of evidence of that throughout all of our world and within our health, I'm sure it's most highlighted because like you said, it's very reflective of our ability to reproduce and, you know, it's very close to survival of the fittest essentially. Yeah, there's three things that are really adaptive in the past that are really maladaptive these days. One of them is that we want to be lazy. Another mm. is that we really enjoy calorie-dense food. Mm. And the other is that um, we're hardwired for survival, which is a really good design on a savanna where 99% of the time you're not particularly stressed, but 1% of the time it's life or death. Mm. And we live in this flip script now where... We are chronic low-grade stress all the time, and it's not so life or death for the most part. I'm not saying it never is. You know, it can be. But um, in a way, it makes a lot of people prone to anxiety mm -hmm. because we're sort of designed to be hypervigilant and anticipating potential negative consequences and to be obsessed about that. There's no survival advantage to being hardwired to be chill. Like it's just not part of the design. Right. So that ends up requiring a sort of more like philosophical pushback on our attachments to um, controlling the outcome of situations. I think that the more that we can actually surrender and trust and show up and say, all I can do is do my best. And then I release the outcome. I don't control that part. I think mm -hmm. that that is the way to kind of push back against our hardwiring for survival. Definitely. That makes a lot of sense. Just kind of outlining that process, which is if we're in this chronic state of low lying stress, then that's an indicator for our body, which is evolutionarily old being like, Oh, why am I experiencing this stress? 
And then it creates this feeling or sensation of, oh, like I am in danger. And that is all subconscious, just part of like the survival mechanism that we were optimized to be. So understanding that that is part of the process and that is inherently within us, then it ends up creating or exhibiting this behavior that is now maladaptive or not a right fit in society based on kind of the issues that we experience from chronic stress. And, you know, a great example um, in uh, a positive psychology class that I was in in college, we read this book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's the very reason is because it's fight or flight. Like they're only stressed when they need to run away from a lion and otherwise they're okay. And it's because it's a very normal distribution of stress. Whereas us, we just have this consistent level of stress because our life inundates us with opportunities for stress that we then perceive as stress. And it's just, again, it's like that maladaptive behavior. And we can geek out about that all day long. I just love, I, I love how the remnants of our evolutionary past are like so underlying in everything we do, but they're unspoken. It's just fascinating. There's one other really important point that comes up with that, which is that animals actually have a practice for discharging stress after a life or death situation. They shake, they flap their wings vigorously, they do a kind of physical purge, hmm. and it helps reset their nervous system. It's a control alt-delete, and all of that adrenaline and cortisol starts to metabolize. And so we as socialized humans, we're, you know, like a really good example is like you, you're walking down the street and you trip, and your body goes into a little stress response. You can almost feel it coming out of your adrenal hmm. glands. And you sort of feel embarrassed. And so the minute you catch your balance, you just like head down, walk on. And it's a kind of like, be cool, be cool. Don't draw attention. But what we really need to do in that moment is stop and be like, oh, I just almost bit it. And my body was stressed to catch my balance. And I kind of like, like shake it off for a minute. And then it resets your nervous system. And that's a small example, but there are much bigger examples in our lives where sometimes we need a practice for shaking or dancing or journaling or crying where we can release the stress that we take on. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other thing that speaks truth to the survival, scarcity, fear mindset is to just remind ourselves um, it's, it's more just a cognitive choice that we have enough, that we are enough, that we mm -hmm. will have enough, that we're okay. Mm -hmm. And that's not how we're hardwired, but it is a choice we get to make as yeah. reflective conscious beings. Sure. It's, it's not hardwired, but it is a tactic that we can use to interact with our hardwiring. You know, something that I believe is, you know, talking about our subconscious, it's driven by our beliefs and identities that we hold. And in order to uproot or change those beliefs and identities, we need to provide evidence in our behavior and environment that then tells us like, oh, this is what I believe. This is how I identify. So we can use that choice as a mechanism to be able to introduce that conversation into the belief system, you know? So it, it seems so silly, you know, like this idea of affirmations or statement, you know, like it seems silly being like, oh, I can't just say it and it's going to change anything, but it does because that's the language that your subconscious speaks. So like you said, you know, making that choice and being intentional about it is just an incredible opportunity for us to enact this change and to bridge this gap between the evolutionary being that we were designed to be and the cognitive being that we are today. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating concept. And um, I, I think I'd love to kind of like push another step within stress because you are an expert mm -hmm. in mental health and stress, depression, anxiety is something that you have a lot of experience in and you've been able to generate great results from. And, you know, especially now since mental health is such a, it's a more approachable subject. You know, it's something that there is a conversation around now, which is so important because many people have just been living um, through it without any kind of resource or guidance or confidence to, to be able to treat it. Um, and a lot of this comes from, you know, like 
these emotions that aren't being expressed, which are, you know, stress, anxiety, and depression. And I'd love just kind of for you to share a few things, you know, you already kind of shared some of those like nervous system resets, but beyond that, um, some of the exercises or practices that people can implement in order to help relieve the stress, anxiety, or depression that they're experiencing as a first step toward um, more mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anxiety, for example, I'm writing a book on it right now. I think about it from a lot of different angles, but there are some just basic physiologic changes we can make to address our anxiety. Um, a lot of anxiety, it's not like a deep truth. It's actually a, what's called a false mood. This is a concept introduced by Julia Ross in her book, The Mood Cure. And it's basically that we have these physical states of imbalance that we can get tripped into causes a stress response in the body and that feels synonymous with anxiety panic and so these are avoidable causes of anxiety and they're not really serving us and they're common it's just mundane things that we do that we don't realize are contributing considerably to our anxiety so that's things like blood sugar crashes like if we're eating refined carbohydrates and coffee drinks that are actually milkshakes and then rosé all day, mm -hmm. our blood sugar's on a roller coaster. And when it crashes, that feels like anxiety. Um, lack of magnesium. So something as simple as taking an Epsom salt bath or supplementing with magnesium glycinate can be helpful. Caffeine, I hate to say it, nobody ever likes this conversation, but if for anybody who drinks caffeine and struggles with anxiety, I, I'm sorry, I apologize, but it is true that coffee, caffeine, it is an anxiogenic drug. It's a drug that creates anxiety. So if you want to reduce your anxiety, reducing your caffeine is going to help. There are certain foods that seem to contribute to anxiety for some people. It's things like gluten. For some people, it's dairy. For some people, it's sugar. For some people, it's more random, um, but any kind of dietary intolerance. And any kind of gut dysfunction, like if our digestive tract is not well, if we're inflamed, um, if we don't have the right diversity of bugs in our digestive tract, that can create anxiety. And that I think is a pretty revolutionary idea because we're at the point where we appreciate that the top-down communication, like you're stressed before a test and you have nervous diarrhea, that part we get, but it's a two-way street. And so something's not right in your gut that sends communication up to your brain and says something is not right in the body. Feel a sense of unease until we can correct it. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the physical approaches to anxiety. But then anxiety is also sometimes that whisper from within us that's saying something's not right, mm -hmm. whether it's in my personal life, whether it's globally in the world. And that's the one we want to slow down and listen to and really honor. And it's in many ways showing us our path, like what we're here to do, what contribution we're here to make. And so you really actually want to sit in the middle of the fire of your anxiety at times and really glean the lessons that it's here to communicate. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, especially the multifactorial approach, again, holistic, but from the, like, the very practical uh, implications of your gut health and your physiology and how that might be communicating a sense of anxiety or contributing toward a sense of anxiety. And then also just more of the cognitive um, you know, interpretation of, am I, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I want to do? Like, you know, kind of the, the first world problems, so to speak of, um, kind of like, you know, why, why does something feel off? And I think, I think in both cases, there's an opportunity to reframe anxiety as it's a message. It's basically, it is, it is just a message that is trying to communicate something to you to make a change and to, to not feel that anymore. So it's, 
when you see anxiety and I personally don't suffer from much anxiety, but you know, if, if one person were to see anxiety from the lens of like, Oh, this is helping me to find a better balance to restore a certain state versus, Oh, this is hindering me from the expression that I want or the, um, the happiness that I feel like I should be feeling like that's such a different conversation using that as the message versus as the consequence. And, uh, it's just important to, I mean, it's a choice and it's important to approach it that way. Brian, I feel like you're helping me write my book because you just gave me this insight that I don't think I've had up until now, which you're exactly right. Anxiety is, and credit will go to you. Anxiety is, um, it is, it is a signal in the body that says something's not right. Take action. And it can truly be anything from you, the body is inflamed, address the inflammation, to we don't have enough, we're hungry, we don't have enough food, we don't have enough zinc, we don't have enough B12, all the way to um, racial injustice or climate change. It's mm-hmm. not right, take action. Yeah. And, and our body has a beautiful, crisp way of communicating that. So a lot of the time what we have to do when we're anxious is kind of just sit down and take stock. Is this a small thing? Is this a big thing? Is this a physiologic thing? Is this a psycho-spiritual thing? It's a crisp message, but it's not necessarily discernible, you know, because it's, it's a broad message. So like, how are you supposed to know exactly what it's trying to communicate to you? And that's where it comes back to the intuition and feeling and the what is off, tell me, you know, and like almost asking for that secondary message beyond getting your attention, then tell me what to do, tell me what to address. So there's like, it's almost the first step in that cascade of figuring out exactly what needs to happen. I think there's a learning curve to learning how to listen to the language of the body. Mm. Like it can't speak in words, you know, it, at point I'm sure it wishes it could. It's <laughs> just, it wants to be like, Ellen, listen to me. Yeah. But I think that it has to speak in this other more vague way. Mm-hmm. But then I'm just thinking about like a game of memory that I play with my daughter where you like flip the card, flip the card. Nope, not a match. Flip the card, mm. flip the card, not a match. Flip the card, flip up, oh, match. And I think that in a way when, when I'm feeling something deeply, this certainly came up for me at the beginning of the pandemic and I was waking up at 4 a.m., couldn't sleep, would go sit in meditation. And I, I, the question was really like, what do you need me to hear, body? Like, what do I need to be listening to right now? Mm-hmm. And, and I would basically sit there and it's not like it gave me answers, but you get this strong internal sense of knowing when you've hit upon like, aha, like that's the right next step. That's the mm. path forward. And I think we can get quiet and listen to our body and be like, body, what is it? And the body can kind of just nudge you in the direction of like, yeah, you're on the right track, warmer, getting warmer. And so you just keep listening for that and you just keep checking in because at some point it'll be like, nope, colder, colder, that's not it. And the body does talk. It tells us, I I think the body says yes or no in a more discernible way. Like it's a little bit Mm. more broad strokes how the body talks. Yes is an expansive, open, warm, loving feeling. It's a lighter feeling. And no is a contracting, cold, tight, rigid, um, just closing off feeling. Mm. And I think that sometimes you have to phrase the question as a yes or no question to the body and it'll tell you. Sure. Yeah. And those sensations are very different so they're very discernible so it ends up being effective communication at that point i i think that's so great because like the first step to this that whole analogy of flip the cards yes or no yes or no and when it's yes yes but you got to start with that first flip so it's like what's the first place to start and from what i've learned from you um in the research i've done is you kind of point to two different things one we've already talked about which is diet you know it's not about 
like necessarily, you know, I, oh, to lose weight, I need to exercise more. It's like, no, just audit your diet. You know, it's like, let's start there. It's easier. So that's one. The second one, which is the topic I want to finish on, which we can talk all day about also is sleep. You know, so like your sleep patterns is kind of the second area for like real improvement. And again, as you're flipping these cards, trying to figure out what the right fit is, it might be higher up on the totem pole in terms of like a practical um, communication, right? Like that might be the right answer. So, and, and it ties really interestingly back into mental health, depression, anxiety, stress, et cetera. But I, I, I'd love to kind of like hear a little bit more about sleep and the role that sleep plays in our mental health and, um, and yeah, and the different ways that we can even experiment with sleep if we're looking to try and um, generate this change. Yes, Brian, sleep, there's nothing I like talking about more than sleep. So, and I was somehow remiss in not mentioning this as a very common physical root cause of anxiety is just chronic sleep deprivation. Mm. I like talking about sleep because it is so changeable. It's so treatable. There are a few exceptions, menopause, shift labor, to some extent jet lag. But for the most part, for most of us who are struggling with sleep, it's eminently treatable. And it goes back to evolutionary biology. Our whole circadian rhythm is cued by light. There's other factors, but light is the lion's share. And like, I think about the boardroom of evolution where there were like these creatures sitting around. They're like, how are we going to make the humans feel awake during the day and tired at night? And they're like, let's use light. That makes so much sense. Um, so the light will make them feel awake. The darkness will let them feel tired. Foolproof. Um, and it was foolproof until, you know, we invented electricity and then Netflix and now it's hopeless. <laughs> so it's basically, we're just giving our brain such a mixed message and <clears throat> we should be alert, active, awake in that sort of you stress engaged state of mind during the day that's in many ways prompted by sunshine. And then at night after the sun sets, we, their cortisol, our stress hormone goes down and melatonin increases and that makes us feel sleepy. It allows us to sleep deeply and have restorative sleep and it even revs up our immune system so we can fight off infections and nascent cancers. And this whole system is helter-skelter in modern days and it really comes down to light. So things that most of us is really just make sure we actually get the light signal during the day, which means sunshine. And then after sunset, that things get more mellow in our homes. So whether that means you just install a dimmer switch, you have um, flux installed on your computer, night shift mode on your phone, and then getting a pair of like orange plastic glasses to put on maybe the last half an hour or hour before bed can be so impactful. And then as we brought up before, like not bringing the phone into the bedroom, it's interventions like this, small, free, safe, that make all the difference. And, yeah. and to answer the other part of your question, like when we're sleeping better, mental health issues across the board improve. Everything mm -hmm. from depression and anxiety, certainly bipolar, ADHD enormously, um, OCD, but then also it's, it's increasing our health span, our lifespan, but also our health span, decreasing risk of dementia, decreasing risk of cancer, inflammation, like it just, it impacts our health across the board. But I get the pushback all the time when I'm, when someone's talking about their sleep struggles, they're like, I struggle with my sleep. It's the depression that's causing that. Mm -hmm. And I always kind of want to push back, like the depression is a bit of a construct. Like this is, this is an invention of mm -hmm. modern life that we call it the depression. Depression. depression is a symptom like anything else. It is not a syndrome. It's not a disease. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not like a thing that is objectively happening in your body. It is, it is a, it's a collection of symptoms. But um, yes, 
when someone's depressed, they often have sleep disturbances, but sometimes those share a common root cause. It's not that the depression is causing the sleep disturbance, it's that perhaps the thyroid abnormality or the dysregulated stress response or you know whatever is going on under the water, it's, it's kind of that's what's causing both. Mm. But also the sleep disturbance is contributing to this symptom of depression. Sure. No, that's a really good explanation of it. And I, I think it's just so funny how like when you think of sleep, it's something that we do for a third of our life. Like we have 24 hours in a day. We should be sleeping seven, eight hours, or at least, I don't know. I'm just pulling, you know, much better than I do, but I'm just pulling numbers. But, and that's something that's funny too, is like, it's something that we spend so much time doing, which means that it's so critical and fundamental to all of our waking hours, yet we don't think about it enough. It's just, it's almost like a second thought where it should be one of the primary thoughts. I think that, I think it makes sense why it's, one of the high levers next to diet that we can pull in order to improve our holistic health because it is something that's so pervasive and so important. So I, I love that. Uh, I love that philosophy. And cool. to answer that question, like 95% of the human population needs seven to nine hours of sleep, but it doesn't mean you just get to like choose off a menu. Like I'll take seven. Sure. It's something I think of it. I heard this once. Um, it's like a shoe size. Like you either are a size seven or a size eight or a size nine. <laughs> and the tricky thing is that many people who are a size nine are walking around wearing a size seven shoe all day. Mm. And so it hurts. And so basically, if you know you are somebody who needs nine hours of sleep, I encourage people to protect that fiercely, unapologetically, mm. and make sure you just actually get the amount of sleep your body needs. And there's nothing wrong with that. It doesn't make you a lesser human. Um, it, sometimes you'll see people think like society tells me I should sleep less and be more productive. But just remember your body is right and society is wrong in that case <laughs> amazing yeah i <laughs> yeah and i think the only way that you can make progress is to experiment like you try the shoe on and then if the shoe fits then <laughs> it fits you know so there's yeah. like yeah it's and again it comes back to just like that intuitive feeling of like you'll know when it's right um cool all right so to wrap this up um what i like doing is kind of trying to summarize the conversation or at least the, the main point of the conversation kind of one thought um so if anyone learned anything from this or can take any one thing away from the conversation or this concept of holistic health? What is the one thing that you want to make sure people understand? Hmm. I guess I want to encourage people to let go a bit of these external objective power structures that are telling you what you should eat, what you should buy, whether or not you're healthy, um, what your vitamin D level is in your bloodstream, sort of like think that we just recognize you need less of that and bring it into yourself. Feel empowered that it's the fundamentals. Eat in a certain way, move your body, sleep, have community, find meaning and purpose. This is actually the bedrock of your health and you don't really need anybody else for that. We just need to slow down, get quiet, listen internally and trust what we hear. Dr. Ellen Vora. This has been a, an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for this new perspective that I have toward health and I hope other people have. And let's be a part of the movement that introduces this philosophy to more people so that we can be happier and healthier. What else do we want? But I, I appreciate your time. This has been incredible. Brian, thank you so much. Thanks for doing the work you do. What a conversation. Dr. Ellen shared with us a really important concept, which is that no one knows us and our health like we do, and we need to respect our individuality. 
We started the conversation tapping into what a holistic approach looks like when it comes to medicine and how Ellen became comfortable practicing in that way despite industry and social pressures. Then we talked about overall health and the importance of being able to feel what's right and how our body usually communicates that with us. We also talked about evolutionary biology and how our evolutionarily optimized hardware and genes interact with our far different modern software and creates imbalances that we need to manage. And then we finished by focusing on sleep and what we can do to better understand and work within our natural rhythms. As you could hear, Dr. Ellen is incredibly bright and she has so much to offer. I can't wait to continue watching her flourish. I encourage you to follow her on Instagram at EllenVoraMD and Vora is spelled V-O-R-A. And if you took a special interest in her expertise, you can find different ways to work with Ellen on her website www.ellenvora.com. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, be sure to take 30 seconds to write a review and let us know how much you like the podcast. The knowledge will keep on coming and I'm so honored to provide it for you. Don't be a stranger. Send me a note and come back soon. I'll see you next time on Self-Improvement Daily.